This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. For this episode of the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, Roshi Joan Halifax returns to explore the idea of a blessed catastrophe and reflects on the transformative power of suffering. In this life, there are moments of blessed catastrophe which challenge our resilience and strength of character. Like a crucible, these moments burn away our faults and impurities. Through her experiences, Roshi Joan gives us insight into working through these trials and how these experiences lead us to the Buddha nature and the divine. Enjoy this talk with Roshi Joan and stay tuned for more from the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. There's this feeling uh, in our practice both of uh, connecting with what R.D. and uh, Neem Kroli Baba and that tribe calls uh, divine, the divine. In Buddhism, we call it Buddha nature, your, your basic goodness, which is um, shared by all beings and things. So it's that quality of uh, relaxation, and also of tenderness, of great openness, of courage. And in the spirit of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, uh, even though there is lots of suffering in this room, in this world, it's also um, smiling into the blessings like the great blessing Ramdas had with his stroke, being stroked. I myself had a serious accident and have a big prosthesis in my leg, and I say to R.D. often, well, you got stroked, I got screwed. <laughs> Not bad. 
I'm looking at the bride and groom whom we married uh, just the other night. I'm just surprised you showed up at this hour. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, that, that was a free association. <laughs> so we're here to freely associate. Um, we have covert Buddhists, covert Hindus, and um, we're coming out of the closet all over the place. So smiling into uh, the great cosmic laughter that's in there. It's, the, it's like our mitochondria are uh, having a good time and at the same time being aware of the truth of suffering. I, I don't have to work hard for that. I don't think you do either. And it's working um, both sides of the street. The street of the absolute or the ultimate of the divine or Buddha nature and also the relative which is all the details of life which relate to greed, hatred and just plain old confusion that give rise to so much suffering. And having that kind of grandmother's heart in the middle of it where you can sort of see both dimensions and hold and live both dimensions. So let's take a few moments of in-breath, really gathering our attention. Exhale, drop into the body. And the next inhale, one more time, gathering your attention, all the threads that are out there on your various psychosocial platforms and on the exhale, drop your attention into this body, this precious human body. Hard to get one of these. And on the next inhale, gather your attention. And drop into the body. And like the wave motion of this beautiful place where we are, with the waves coming and going, let the next wave, the next in-wave of in-breath, invite you to affirm your intention to really be of benefit in this world. As RD's club says, serve. What is it to serve without any attachment to identity or to outcome?
and sitting with that question in the background of your mind and in the center of your heart. The remember of love, serve, and remember. Remember who you really are. And knowing that in a way that's a question that is underneath the skin of your whole life, who am I really? And we'll return to that question Again and again, as we move through our days, and for now, just invite the breath deep in the body. Deep inhale, giving space in the whole torso. So often we're folded over our technology. See if you can lift out of your technology. Give yourself space. Give the world space. Be in open space. Exhale. When I was um, uh, around four years old, I, I woke up one morning and I, I couldn't see. And um, I remember the feeling quite vividly of... Um, uh, it wasn't uh, terror, it was more uh, close to wonder. It was kind of like, uh, you know, when you're four, uh, you can have a number of responses, and I didn't have this in my vocabulary then, but it was a kind of, oh, wow, response. You know, it was more awe than fear. And I slept in the same bedroom with my sister, and um, who was uh, not quite three years old. And um, I remember uh, being in bed, waking up, uh, opening my eyes, but not being able to see, but being able to hear my sister breathing and then hearing myself breathing. And then pulling myself out of my little kid bed and feeling um, my way into my parents' room, sliding my right hand against the wall and uh, going into their bedroom and saying, um, I'm blind. But, you know, in a kind of matter-of-fact way. 
So I had uh, two years of having been a sighted person and then <coughs> being unable to um, perceive uh, the world visually. And um, it was really important uh, to recognize um, that I could go inside and see the world. And at the time, it wasn't kind of a good thing. I mean, I had was uh, sent to Children's Hospital in Boston. You know, penicillin was used for everything. I was allergic. I almost died of anaphylactic shock. You know, it was just one medical catastrophe after another. Um, but something had uh, been given to me at a young age, which is there for all kids, which is being able to see inside. And being able also to um, imagine and to uh, reconstruct and to sense not just with the eyes and also not just with the ears, but um, the whole body to be able to feel the world. Well, everybody has uh, a blessed catastrophe. And if you haven't had one, like a bad birth experience, if you will, or uh, a grave illness, um, don't go seeking it. <laughs> it's kind of a karmic deal. But there is a way in um, the worlds that we live in that this sacred catastrophe is uh, asked for. And this is as uh, occurs in uh, cultures, many going extinct now, but it's rites of passage. It's these times in the phase shift of our life, and this was a developmental phase shift for me. Ramdas's stroke was a developmental mental face shift for him. Um, that was what? How long ago? Almost 20 years ago, Baba? How many years ago was your stroke? 20. So we're celebrating your 20th anniversary. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Amazing. In these blessed catastrophes, um, which are the charnel ground, if you will, where courage and love are awakened. For some, the charnel ground was actually in your biological birth. If I'm uh, to uh, think back on the work that I did with my ex-husband, Stanislav Grof, when we were giving LSD to other people, particularly those dying of cancer, and they were reliving their biological birth. A really powerful rite of passage that Stan and I were participants in. Where you begin to see it's not only a rite of passage for the mother, the so-called 
a maternal organism, but a, a rite of passage. Birth is for the baby himself or herself. Because somehow in our body we remember that and we live out that birth experience in all kinds of ways the rest of our life. Or it can be a rite of passage that uh, you've been through but wasn't so uh, confirmed by your uh, society, your culture, your family of uh, entering into school and suddenly leaving home and then being subject to peer review, if you will. We know how rough peer review can be. Or it can be the rite of passage, for example, um, of taking vows in marriage and then getting down to the real business of what's beneath the skin of the personality and how do we live those vows as we literally and figuratively un are undressed in the intimacy of relationship because relationship is also a path. Or it could be a rite of passage that uh, many of us went through I know some people in this room, including myself, in my 20s went through absolute psychological hell. We hit, really hit the wall big time. It was just, um, for me, I look back at the person that I was in my 20s and 30s and I go, well, who was that person? Do you know what I mean? Like, wow, who was that person? I hardly have those feelings left inside of me because somehow um, the medium of my life through meditation and through mountains has uh, burned away a certain amount of dross. I won't say uh, anybody here is drossless, if you know what I'm saying. A little dross goes a long way. Or as I said uh, recently uh, to these Japanese uh, clinicians, no mud, no lotus. So you just see the picture of the lotus, but what you don't know is under there is the mud. That's what's feeding the lotus. So for me, I'm always trying to work the edge. And the edge is to include uh, not only the lotus, but also the mud. And to open um, this life that I live to um, not just the full beauty of uh, the divine in its blessed manifestation, but also um, to the power of encountering one's suffering honestly, courageously, knowing that, that that encounter is what can really fuel love. Our ability to stand in the fire, our ability to not only put our toes, but to immerse ourselves completely in the mud, or to find ourselves dropped from a high building into suffering. 
And there are three kinds of uh, phases that um, are part of this journey that I think are, are kind of important. Um, and it's not about, again, coming from Japan just a few days ago. I mean, here their nuclear reactors are literally in meltdown. Nothing in the press. Here's a culture where dying people are usually given palliative sedation so as not to suffer. Another form of denial, interestingly enough. And what we're asked to do is to really explore within ourselves how can we meet the full catastrophe of this life in all of its beauty, the mud and the lotus, and actually build resilience, build energy in so doing, instead of so often as caregivers, as servers, finding ourselves diminished, stressed out, suffering from secondary trauma, engaging in pathological altruism, finding ourselves in a state of uh, exhaustion at the kind of core vital level. How do we develop those capacities that really let us hold in loving awareness everything? Knowing that loving awareness is not very s sappy. And yet we need the juice. It's what Sokni Rinpoche uh, says, not greasy love, but juicy love. Not greasy love, but juicy love. So in these three phases that were articulated by Arnold van Hennep, who was a Dutch anthropologist, an ethnographer, in the uh, early 1900s, around 1920, when he was... Uh, looking at various cultures and how these cultures build character within their members and not uh, foster caricatures in their society. Um, he saw that one of the most important things, processes, in these various cultures, whether old high culture or whether indigenous culture, were these stressful rituals that people went through to mark periods of maturation, of growth, but to be sent into conditions of incredible uncertainty. Like, what is it, instead of being terrified by the unknown, to actually um, create the conditions where uncertainty is not only an ally, but also, that's just the way it is. Do, do you know what I'm saying? It's like that kind of wisdom edge. It's like, well, I'm an ally of uncertainty. Yeah, and that's just the way it is. We don't know what's going to happen in the next second. When I was a kid, I didn't know going to bed one night, I'd wake up and couldn't see. R.D. was working on his book. 
He didn't know that in the middle of working on his manuscript, suddenly he couldn't think or move. Who knew, really, that on Saturday, fragile Nepal would be torn apart by an earthquake long anticipated, but it was on that day it happened. And the blessing is, it was midday, so many people were out of those structures that couldn't sustain the shaking. But thousands, now over 5,000, probably closer to 10 or more, have died. Who knew that there would be a deep, earthquake in the Pacific causing a tsunami that would wipe out a whole area of northern Japan and take down TEPCO, a nuclear power plant, and that we would be in this global crisis. Who, in their wildest dreams, at least in Chernobyl, you'd think, well, maybe you'd get it. And prepare. But who knew? So we really live with this mystery of not knowing. What's going to happen in the next second? That some huge wave that gets translated through the tectonic plates and shivers the earth and then raises up the sea and envelops us. Who knows? Who knows? So a rite of passage gives us a kind of a template where we look at what is this life really about? Well, dang, it's about one truth we can be sure about, that we'll all die. And that's what my bro, R.D., says, you're going to talk about death, right? <laughs> So, Baba, I did. <laughs> Whatever you say, boss. <laughs> so these three phases are really uh, that Van Hennep articulated, that Mircea Iliadi wrote about extensively, Joseph Campbell, myself, many others, have used as a kind of grid for understanding what we go through as human beings, to be a kind of mapping. But of course, the map is not the territory. But I just want to share what those three phases are, just so you can remember a time in your life when you went through the phase shift, the change, the dropping away, being with what Roshi Burney calls not knowing. And my first teacher, Dave Sansonim, used to say, only keep a dawn mind. Don't know. Or Vimala Kirti called it, developing a tolerance for the inconceivable. How do we open up our heart to that? Because it's only through that, that Buddha nature, or the divine, or Christ, or the wonder of death, of life, 
can be made visible, can be felt. And it's through that that love emerges. So this first phase that Van Hennep uh, identified was the phase of separation. It's leaving our home ground. It could be a geographical separation, but it also could be the death of someone close to you. It could be separation from your bank account. You know, suddenly your material wealth is no more. I remember once uh, at Upaya, before we built the Zendo, um, a very uh, attractive, uh, extremely confident woman stepped into the Zendo and uh, sat there during Zazen just sobbing. I mean, just sobbing inconsolably. And we held her space, as is our want. And then, um, afterwards, I approached her and I said, so, uh, Kay, or the initial of her first name, I said, is there anything you want to talk about? And she said, <gasps> The stock market just crashed. <laughs> and I thought, okay, perhaps you'd like to go into that a little more. Oh, my God. Well, okay. You know, we all have our attachments. <laughs> the stock market just crashed. <clears throat> but that's a real thing for people. Separation and loss, whether it's of our beloved family or of our means, of our source. But there's also other kinds of losses, like RD. You lost a few capacities, but you gained a few more. Losing a bank account, maybe you become even more resourceful. Losing a child, maybe that pushes you out into the world to take care of all children. Losing your sight, you learn to see in other ways. How do we welcome loss at the same time be worked by loss? It's not to make light of loss at all or to make loss light, but is to have the courage to let go down into the bottom of the well of sorrow so that the broken heart finally breaks open to a wider world. It takes incredible courage to go there. No mud, no lotus.
First, your love was invested in one thing. Then, love drops away. We ask, why? Why me? Why my family? Why this situation? I know when Baba had his stroke, I thought, of all people, somebody whose ability to, with speech, characterize the deepest aspects of the human heart, suddenly his speech is taken away for a while, but also radically transformed. Why Baba, of all things? Why? This morning when we were walking here, Noah reminded me of a, a koan called Kyogen's Man in a Tree. It's one of my favorite koans. And it's about building the strength to really hang there. What it is to really hang there. And it goes something like this. There's a man hanging in a tree. His teeth are wrapped around a branch. His hands cannot touch the tree. His feet cannot touch the tree. Another man walks beneath him and looks up and says, why did it Bodhidharma come from the West? The man hanging from the tree by his teeth. If he opens his mouth to help the man, he loses his life. If he doesn't open his mouth, he doesn't help the man. End of koan. End of story. So I want to repeat that koan one more time. Really pay attention. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and tell me Share with each other what you see. This is called Kyogen's Man in a Tree. There's a man hanging in a tree. His teeth are wrapped around a branch. Really feel it in your body. His hands cannot touch the tree, nor can his feet. Another man walks beneath him, and that man looks up and says, Excuse me, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? If the man opens his mouth to help the other man, he falls to his death. 
If he keeps his teeth clamped around the branch and says nothing, he doesn't help the man. And as you hear this, notice whatever is happening in the body. Notice what's happening in the body. And then turn to a person next to you and I'm going to ask you for, you know, between five and seven minutes, what do you see? What do you notice? What are you learning? from that koan. Okay. So you know in this practice with these uh, Zen stories, they're, they're kind of folk tales, they're public cases, but it's also a practice. And the practice is about suspending your identity. Oh boy. Suspending your identity and also um, your predispositions. And um, allowing yourself to become every element in the koan. And it's like a snapshot in time. In a way, there's no past and no future. And so it's this sensibility, this, this kind of like, you're between worlds. So it relates back in part to um, what I was talking about before we entered the koan. And that is um, being able to not find a solution because that's a reference point that the ego needs desperately. We're strategizing constantly for a kind of perfect way to get out of our dilemma. A perfect answer to the question. Something that can make us feel completely secure. But if we take this just as a snapshot of one moment, of one time being, one dharma, just that moment, and everything you said is all great, I have to say. There's a lot to do. Let's just get on with it. I'm going to drop down. And maybe the catch, you know, I don't know. All good. But also there's this capacity which we're developing, which is to live with not knowing to allow ourselves to be separated from security or a feeling of solidity or ground underneath our feet. It's a kind of radical position. It's a scary position. It's really frightening. It's exactly the position that we don't want to be in because we have the answer and we're such a solution-oriented society. And so we live in why. Why my family? Why us? Why me? And the process and the practice is to actually let us separate from all reference points, even dependence on the divine, because that's, in a certain way, something outside of us and to develop the kind of courage
that intrinsically experiences the freedom of this moment, the be here nowness of right now, this Dharma. So the power of separation that's characterized in this koan, but also of what Van Hennep was speaking about, it is about not only letting go, but it's also having all of the solutions, the possibilities peeled off of us and being in this kind of rawness, this nakedness of this now. I know how I feel when I figure something out. You know, I have this feeling of ego victoriousness, like, wow, I got it. <laughs> you know that feeling in the body? Like, I got it, I understand, <laughs> kind of thing. No, it's not that. It is divine bewilderment. It's being in the wildness of a world without solutions. So I'm going to invite us for just a, a few moments to close our eyes and be self-honest. It's not easy to lose a loved one, capacity, reference points. It's not easy to lose our youth, our direction. And see if you can remember a time being, a moment in time, when the full impact of loss, separation, not knowing, of being completely without ground. And notice if you don't want to recall that moment, It's not always a bad moment. It could be a moment of orgasm. It could be a moment of incredible discovery where you realize that everything you cared about is not that important. A mind-blowing moment. Notice how the body feels as you contemplate that moment and notice how the body feels if you don't want to contemplate that moment. If the mind really wants to stay busy and entertain because it's too threatening to recall, acknowledge that. I just don't want to go there. Not right now.
and invite the breath deep in the body. Notice whatever's arising for you in this moment in the body as you invite the breath deep in the body. As you touch into radical insecurity. And open up to all the many gifts of your life that made it possible for you to be here in this really beautiful place, taking nourishment at Baba's table. Our life is characterized by fundamental insecurity. And our work and our practice is in a certain way about developing the capacity to actually live with not knowing, with this mushin, this beginner's mind, with a sense of awe and wonder, and also with this heart of bodhicitta, this kind of incredible uh, sense of altruism of what can I really do with this life? in order to benefit others. And part of that is how um, can I take care of myself a little bit as I go along, because if I completely waste myself, that becomes pathological altruism. But if I'm like, oh, I can't eat that, no, not that, it becomes a kind of pathological self-care, self-compassion sort of narcissism. So it's finding this middle path that um, walks uh, knowing that there are two sides to the road and that self and other are not separate. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/be here now today 
to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.